Kip held a book open across one arm and rubbed his forehead, rubbed his eyes. He discovered a little trick to help his concentration. He was standing at the window, and now he closed the book, keeping a finger tucked in to hold his place. He looked left and right. No one was in sight. He turned the book over. Its cover was bright blue. Drafters blue. Blue sluiced through him, starting at his eyes, and cleared away every obstruction to logic. Weariness, emotion, even pain from sitting scrunched. <sighs> Kip let the blue go. He grabbed another book, on the fauna of old Ruthgar when it was called Green Forest. It was actually a pretty interesting book, but he had grabbed it for its cover as well. Drafters red. The primary colors, not in the sense artists use the term, but in the drafter sense, the colors that were closest to their Luxon counterparts, were endlessly popular. Kip looked at the cover and drafted a bit of red. It blew air on the dying sparks of his passion for learning about the cards. He set the book down, grabbed orange. A thin tendril of that helped him be more aware of how objects related. He wasn't doing any of these colors perfectly, he knew. To be counted a drafter of a particular color, you had to be able to craft a stable block of its Luxon. Kip couldn't do that. He could draft only green and blue. The sub-red had been a fluke, just that once. He'd taken the test. He was a bichrome. But what he could do was pretty darn useful. He opened his book again and kept reading. Over the last two weeks, he felt like he'd made a lot of progress learning Nine Kings. Now he had a good sense of the basic strategies. It was, after all, only a game. There were whole realms of information he could simply ignore as well. Strategies when playing more than one opponent, game variants played using fewer cards or more, ways to wager money, drafts from common piles, all unnecessary for him. Then at some point he had a realization that he'd learned basic strategy, but in studying accounts of great games, he still didn't understand why players wouldn't play their best cards immediately. And with a whoosh-like drafting fire, the metagame opened up. Counters that he'd figured were unimportant, perhaps vestigial from the ancient versions of the game, suddenly came into play. Strategies to thin the opponent's deck, theories as to how to balance playstyles when addressing decks of certain colors. It became a game of mathematics, managing piles of numbers, and playing odds. Playing against a certain deck in a certain situation, your opponent would have a 1 in 27 chance of having the perfect card to stop you. If he played countersink now, and he was playing logically, you can infer that he didn't have it. Kip walked up to the librarian with the huge black halo of hair, Rhea Siluz, and handed her back the basic strategy book she told him to memorize. Metagame. Oh, that was quick. Quick? That took me weeks. The next step shouldn't take you so long. She handed him a lambskin-bound book. Hang in there with this one. It's a bit dry. Kip took the book. She'd said the last one was interesting. If that had been interesting and this was dry... But he forgot his complaint as soon as he thumbed open the book. What's this? The writing in the book was odd, blocky, legible, but unnaturally cramped. And unnaturally even. Every letter looked like every other letter, whether it was at the beginning of the word, the middle, or the end. It's an Elysian book, not more than five years old. They've figured out how to copy books with a machine. Think of it! Apparently, it's hideously difficult to make the first copy, but after that, they can make hundreds of copies, hundreds, in a few days. The Elysian scribes are up in arms, afraid their craft will go extinct, but the goldsmiths and clockmakers are flocking to it. They say even tradesmen own books in Lita now. Strange. There was no personality to it. No human hand had inscribed these lines. It was lifeless. Everything the same. No extra space after a difficult sentence to give a reader time to grapple with the implications. 
No space in the margins for notes or illuminations. No particular care taken on a memorable line or passage to highlight it for a tired reader. Only naked ink in the unfeeling stamp of some mechanical roller. Even the smell was different. Oh, I think I'm going to get bored even faster. It makes a book so uh, tedious. It's going to change the world. Not to something better. Can I ask something rude? Generally, when you preface a question that way, no, you shouldn't. Kept trying to figure out a more diplomatic way to ask if she was spying on him. Um, then... Do lists of books students are reading get passed on? If librarians wish to keep their jobs, absolutely. Sometimes we neglect to write down all the titles or miss things, however. Ah, uh, can you miss that I've moved onto this volume? <laughs> Want someone to underestimate your skills, hmm? I don't know if it's possible to underestimate my skills at this point. I'm hoping my skill will take a leap sometime soon and surprise everyone, including myself. If you want to take a leap, you have to stop playing. Kip opened his hands, helpless. I'll teach you. At the end of my shift, I can stay late for an hour or two. I'll bring Dex. So now, a week later, he was waiting for Rhea to come play against him as she had every day. She came out and gestured for Kip to follow her to one of the side rooms. Hmm. I figured out your problem. I'm not smart enough for this game. <laughs> she had a nice laugh, and Kip was nicely infatuated with her. Or Holem. Was he fickle or what? But the women here had been a handful of heavenly beads nicer to him than the girls back home. No, I doubt that's it, Kip. Every card has a story. Oh, no. Every card is based on a real person, on a real legend, anyway. But a number of the cards you've described to me are archaic, pulled from use years ago. They're sometimes known as the black card or the heresy card. The odds of the entire game have shifted without those cards. Some cards can't be counted in ways they easily could have when those cards were in play. You can't tell anyone you've been playing with those cards, Kip. Playing with heresy is a good way to get a visit from the Office of Doctrine. But I'll tell you this. You won't win against someone playing with black cards. The basics are still the same, but all the deep strategy books in the last 200 years have been written around the holes that yanking those cards has created. There's no books with those cards in them? Not here. Not here here, or not in the Chromeria? The Chromeria prizes knowledge so highly that even horrid text describing the rituals the Anarchians used when they would pass infants through the flames haven't been destroyed. Indeed, when they've gotten so old that they need to be copied or disintegrate into dust, we still copy them, albeit with rotating teams of 20 scribes. Each scribe copies a single word and then moves on to the next book and then the next, so the knowledge may be preserved without contaminating anyone fully. Not everything that goes into the dark libraries is simply evil. Much is simply political. But only the most trusted people are allowed beyond the cages. Like who? The chief librarian and her top assistants, of course, the master of scribes and his team, some Luxiats who've been given special dispensation by the White, full drafters who have submitted applications for specific research, are sometimes granted single books, or are accompanied in there. Blackguards and the colours, and sometimes the colours grant permission to certain drafters, but those have to be approved by the chief librarian who answers to the White herself. Blackguards? Well, they're the most likely to have forbidden magic used against them as they protect the prism or the white. And unofficially, they're also the ones who need to know what long-standing feuds there are, so they can prepare defenses against the right people. 
It was a light in darkness. Waykip could kill about 15 birds with one stone. He could learn the game. He could try to dig up dirt on Kleidos Blue. And he could try to find out if his mother had simply been smoking too much haze, or if there had been something to her accusations about Gavin. All it required was that he do what he'd already decided he had to do. Get into the Blackguard. Easy. Ha! Blackguards being allowed in doesn't include scrubs, does it? Mm, no. Nice try. His immediate problem, though, was the games with his grandfather. And he knew, even though he'd been ignoring it because she was pretty and helpful, that he probably shouldn't share anything at all with Rhea Silus. So I've been wasting my time. You can win, but you won't win consistently, even if you play well. The odds you judge from are the wrong odds. And I can't find the real odds by playing because no one plays with the heretical cards Andros Guile has in his decks. And I can't find out the real odds by studying because I'm not allowed into those libraries. Hmm, pretty much. Or... There's someone who might help you. A woman named Borig. Borig? She's an artist, a little eccentric, be respectful. The spies who check in on you are accustomed to you and me spending the next two hours playing in this room. If you leave by the back and take the stairs down a level, you can slip out without them seeing you. It's important, Kip, for her sake as well as yours, that you not be followed or overheard. The Office of Doctrine is more academic now than it once was, but with the recent troubles, there's been talk of appointing a few Luxors. You don't want to run afoul of people who are afraid, not now. Luxors? Lights mandated to go into the darkness, empowered to bring light by almost any means they deem necessary. Hmm, there were abuses. This white wouldn't stand for them to be appointed again, but Aurea Polwa is not a young woman, Kip. It made Kip feel sick to his stomach. There were layers on layers of intrigue here, everywhere lurking under the surface, and any one of them could engulf him. Where is she? Rhea gave him directions, and he left immediately. Down the tower, across the bridge, into Big Jasper. He was walking through a narrow alley before he realized that sneaking away might be dangerous. Might be a setup. How stupid was he? Someone had tried to kill him once already. He didn't know Rhea Silus's loyalties, and she had both given him the problem, the existence of black cards, and the solution. Visiting someone who might not exist in a place far from safety. He should go home right now. He should stop playing with Rhea Silus, and he should... What? Wait until he was a blackguard? Ignore every summons from his grandfather? That wouldn't work. The old man wouldn't let Kip show him that kind of disrespect. Kip didn't know what Androsky would do, but it would be bad. Very, very bad. If only Gavin would come back. Gavin could protect him. Even though Kip had heard people say that Gavin was afraid of Andros Kyle, that everyone was afraid of Andros Kyle, it felt like Gavin could arrive and solve all of his problems in an instant. Kip could go back to being a child again. A child tasked with destroying the blue. Oh, Holum, have mercy. Kip couldn't count on anyone. He had to make the best of it. He had to go on. He looked over his shoulder. Sure enough, a large, unkempt man was looming at the mouth of the alley. The man drew a knife from his belt. It was roughly the size of a sea demon. Kip ran. It was only 20 paces to the nearest light well. Kip skidded to a stop. He fumbled with his pocket, pulled out his spectacles as the big man charged after him. He put them on his face. The big man pulled up short. Oh, I didn't see you there, Drafter, sir. I was just running home. No offense. Kip hadn't even started drafting. In truth, he probably wouldn't have had time to draft before the big man killed him. But the man didn't know that. 
He backed away as if from a wild animal, then ran. Just a thug. Just a thief. Nothing personal. No conspiracy. No assassination attempt. And Kip hadn't even thought of the fighting skills that Iron Fist and Trainer Fisk had been beating into his skull. He looked down at his hands. His knuckles were chafed, fists bruised from constant use. And Kip had simply forgotten it all. Hadn't even occurred to him that he could fight. He tucked his spectacles back in a pocket and saw that the door in front of him was labeled Janus Borig, Demi Ergos. He swore he saw dark-clad figures up several stories on either side of the alley bob out of nowhere quickly and disappear. He felt the weight of hidden eyes. Jumpy, Kip, jumpy. An old woman opened the door. She was almost bald, and she was smoking a long pipe. Long nose, few teeth, a scattering of liver spots amid faded freckles. Her dress was besmirched with paint. She would have looked like a vagabond, but she wore a thick gold necklace that must have weighed a sieve. She was wrinkly and ugly as afterbirth, but plainly vigorous, and there was such warmth in her features, Kip found himself grinning almost immediately. So, you're the bastard. Rhea told me you'd come. Come in! The first thing Kip noticed about Janus Borg's home was that it was home to the largest mess Kip had seen in his life. The mess had paws in every nook, had shed fur in every cranny. Piles of clothes like coughed up hairballs hid the floor, and stacks of books stood like trees for the mess to mark its territory. The mess seemed to have little sense of human valuation because old not-on-chicken bone shared floor space with strands of pearls and either jewels or colored glass close enough to jewels to fool Kip's eyes. The second thing he noticed was the guns. Janus Borig liked guns. There was one attached to the door, swiveling toward the peephole, in case Janus decided to kill a visitor rather than welcome him. But others were scattered everywhere, as if the mess had gotten into them and tossed them about. Pistols, the latest flintlock muskets, matchlocks, blunderbusses, they were handy ways to kill people everywhere. Don't touch anything. Which is impossible, thanks. <laughs> Half the things in here kill you if you nudge them wrong. Oh, lovely. She spun around and put something down on a shelf. It was a tiny pistol. Promise me something, bastard of the greatest prism to ever live. She turned over her pipe and tapped out the ashes into a small pile of the same. She picked up another pistol, cocked it, and then used the spur of the hammer to scrape out the remaining ashes from her pipe. With every scrape, the cocked, and for all Kip knew loaded, pistol rotated from being pointed at Kip's forehead to being pointed at his groin. To his left and right, there were piles. He couldn't move anywhere without touching something. Uh, yes? Promise me you won't kill me, or report me to those who might. I promise. She put down the pistol and grabbed out a pile of tobacco, stuffed some in her pipe, eyeing Kip closely. He swore there was a pile of black powder right next to the pile of tobacco. She snatched a fuse cord from one of the matchlocks and stuck it onto the flame of a lantern, then used the fuse to light her pipe. Swear it. I swear. Again. I swear. And thus you are bound. Come with me. Kip picked his way around, piles that reached up to his knees. The woman wasn't right. He followed her upstairs. It was apparently her workroom. The division between the rooms was stark. The mess didn't set one grubby paw beyond the stairs. There was no disorder here. None. Every surface was immaculate all done in white marble with red veins. Jeweler's lenses and hammers and chisels hung beside tiny brushes, special lanterns, palettes, and little jars of paint. 
One desk was slate, with little bits of chalk and an assortment of abacuses, large and small. An easel sat opposite, with a blank canvas on it, a magnifying lens in front of it. One wall was dedicated to finished cards. They were hung so densely that you couldn't touch the wall. And the wall was so big, so packed from floor to ceiling, that if Kip hadn't spent the last weeks in the library memorizing everything he could learn about these cards, he'd have no idea that every single one of them was worth a fortune. These were originals, and there were too many of them. <gasps> the black cards, the heresy decks, you know of them. I've barely heard a whisper. I... <clears throat> no, not really. What colors have you drafted, Kip Guile? Kip felt a chill, displacement, sickness. That's not my name. There's no one else you can be, Kip. I've seen your eyes. You think you're smart, but the truth is... Right, I know. Everyone tells me... You're a lot smarter than you think you are. Which left him dumbstruck, ironically enough. You're a guile to your bones, young man. Even if you're not a son, a bastard can go far in this world. The Giles are cursed, don't you know? The family has few children, and has had few for generations. Intense lights all snuffed too soon. So the story goes, anyway. Now, what colors have you drafted? Why do you want to know? Because I'm starting your card. She was speaking another language. Or nonsense. Kip knuckled his forehead. I have a gift. Curious. Curious gift. Unusual. I have a host of gifts that are common enough, of course, though not common altogether, and one gift as rare as a prism's. I suppose you're going to tell me. <laughs> Green, of course, but blue, too. What else? You're not merely a bichrome, I'm certain of that. Oh, want to play like that, huh? You can paint. Very skilled, and you're a jeweler, too. You can split a stone finely enough to fit it on your cards. <laughs> Here's the thing. This game is much easier for me. I only have nine colors left to guess from, and you may well be able to draft more than one of those. You, on the other hand, have all the uncommon abilities in the world from which to guess. Nine colors left? Eleven colors? What the hell was she talking about? You're teasing me. Maybe we'll know each other well enough someday that you'll be able to figure that out. Smoke! Subred? Kip thought she was guessing what he could draft. She lowered her pipe. Oh, she'd been offering to share her pipe. You've drafted subred or fire? Same thing. Answer the question. Fire. Do you know, a scheme can be useful without being true. You can see subred? Yes. Can you see Superviolet? He nodded, grudgingly. He wasn't even sure why he was loath to give her more information. Do you want to be a prism, Kip? Everyone probably thinks about that. You don't know if you want it or not. Part of you does. But you don't think you could ever be the man your father is. That's crazy talk. No, it's not. I know crazy talk. I know it well. I am a maker. We're not mere artists. We are the caretakers of history. The cards are history. Each one tells a truth, a story. The black cards tell history that has been suppressed because it threatens... Uh, well, it threatens. Take that as you will. What I'm about to tell you is heresy. Don't repeat it. If you value your life, 
heresy, but true. Take these words and bury them. Treasure them. There are seven great gifts, Kip. Some are common. Others are given only to one person a generation, or one person a century. Light is truth, and all the gifts are connected to this foundation. To light, to truth, to reality. Being a drafter, one who works with the light, is a great gift, but a relatively common one. Being a prism is another. Being a seer who sees the essence of things, uh, that is much rarer. My gift is rare as well. I am a mirror. My gift is that I can't paint a lie. And my gift tells me that your father has two secrets. You, Kip, are not one of them. So, what's your real name? Gavin came to stand beside the Third Eye on the beach. She had kept her vigil on the southernmost point of Sears Island, and the descending sun bathed the woman in gold. Or, what was it before? Who are your people? The Third Eye wore a yellow cotton dress that made her look merely mortal, though she was still a striking, radiant figure. She hadn't sent for Gavin until late afternoon. Her associate, her servant, her friend, Celia, told Gavin that seeing the future took time. Oh, no you don't. You're probably one of those men who accuses women of being capricious, too. Huh? You asked me last night not to tempt you, to be more formal, and today the first thing you do is ask for greater familiarity. Uh-uh, Lord Prism. In your vanity, you can take pleasure in breaking others' hearts, not mine. Vanity? That was a little offensive, a little blunt, a little... accurate. He made to speak, then found he had nothing to say. Oh, I'm sorry. The aftermath of seeing is... I forget myself. <laughs> it's hard not to be honest. My apologies. She snapped open a hand fan and fanned herself. Oh, I'm overheated, too. My skin doesn't well tolerate so much sun. She did indeed look like she'd have a good burn. Seeing requires light, you said. She nodded, but didn't seem interested in explaining her gift any more than that. Did you find it? Many times, and down many paths. It's in the sea. Pardon? The bane is floating, somewhere in the Cerulean Sea. That is useless? Unhelpful? A large area? She'd said three hours east and two and a half hours north, which would be in the sea from here. But somehow he was sure this wouldn't be that easy. I'm aware of this. It's also fairly hard to find landmarks or time markers to tell you where to find it in the sea. It's moving through the water. Where's it going? Where's it coming from? I'm sorry. I think I can tell you it's heading towards center. A, a center? The center? I'm not sure. The center of the sea? Like white mist reef? Or the center like sinking? Bane float. Most of the time. That doesn't give me anything. It gives you enough. If the Bane was floating toward White Mist Reef, then taking the calculations backward, it would be somewhere south of the Elysian city of Smusato, perhaps floating in a line from the border between Perea and Tyria. If he knew where it was going, and he could guess that it would go straight, and he knew where it was going to be at any one time, 
That should give him a line on which it must be. You mean I'm going to find it? Yes. He couldn't believe it. There had to be a catch. This was going to take some figuring with a map and an abacus, but it seemed too easy. How long is it going to take me? If I tell you that, you'll stop looking into the day I said you were going to find it. No, I wouldn't. Yes. Yes, of course I would. <laughs> Am I going to find it in time? Even I don't know what you're asking by that. You can't do this to me. Please don't blame me for things I have nothing to do with. Gavin licked his lips. She was right. Of course she was right. She could see everything. Unnerving still. What can you tell me? That you'll be here for a while, and that the Color Prince is looking for it too, and that you better not let his plan come to fruition. It's growing, Lord Prism, and the more it grows, the more blues will be drawn to it. Blue-whites most of all. Why? What happens? All I know is that the Bane were tied in with the old gods' temples. You'll see. There's something else I should tell you. There's a thousand other things you should tell me. If you take Harris when you go fight it, you're much more likely to succeed. I could have guessed that myself. She's a useful woman. And if she goes with you, she'll almost certainly die. Had to be a catch, didn't there? I'm not trying to give you a catch. I'm trying to give you a chance. Almost certainly. As in 99 times out of 100, or as in 2 times out of 3. When I see her go with you, I watch her die in a dozen different ways. It's not pleasant for me. Especially since I know that if she lives, we're probably going to be friends someday. Assuming you don't bed certain... You know what? I've already said too much. You've called Karis the wife, but then you said it was wrong. What did you mean? Knowing that if you know, it will change things. Do you really want to know? Well, yes. Tough, I'm not telling you. Some soothsayer you are. I'm not a soothsayer, I'm a seer. I see. Sometimes I say what I see. I'm not interested in soothing your feelings. She meant it too. Gavin could see the steel in her again. Doubtless, it was the only way she could remain human and deal with her gift. Karis doesn't like to be left behind when I head into danger. You've brought me 50,000 problems, Lord Prism. That, however, is not one of them. <laughs> My lady, your wit is as sharp as your beauty is radiant. Since the light has so clearly blessed you with its presence, the most I can do is bless you with my absence. Good day. Gavin bowed and left. Mm, I bet you could bounce a dinar from here to the moon off that ass. Gavin shot a look over his shoulder and swore he caught her staring at... <sighs> I can foresee the end of the world, but I can't tell when a man is going to catch me staring at his shapely ass. Gavin could do nothing more than beat a dignified retreat, strangely aware of his ass with every step. The Color Prince had wanted to leave Garriston in six weeks. It had taken eight. Though Liv had spent half her waking hours with the Color Prince, she knew there were entire currents passing right beneath her eyes that she didn't even see. For a Super-Violet, accustomed to seeing that which others didn't, it was discomforting. One day, a general was found, hanged from the open portcullis of the Travertine Palace. Liv only found out after the fact that he had been one who'd advocated staying put, satisfied with regaining Tyria and settling down in their new country. The Color Prince had opened his court that day, saying, While there is oppression anywhere, there is freedom nowhere. Liv heard the statement repeated a dozen times that day, and the next day as they marched. 
He was too busy for her for weeks, spending all his time with his military commanders. Liv was on the outside, literally and figuratively. She rode close to the front, but not with the commanders or advisors. She wasn't certain of her plays, and no one else was either. The women and men who'd been with the prince since he'd left Kelfing didn't trust her. She was the enemy general's daughter. Again. How that infuriated her. In switching sides, her father had managed to make her be cast out from the opposite side than those who treated her like an outcast for her entire youth. After two weeks on the road, one night the color prince summoned her to his tent, which was ostentatiously small and plain. A man of the people. Liv wondered how such transparent tricks worked. But work they did. So, Oliviana, have you learned your purpose yet? You only have perhaps a half a dozen super violets in your whole army. I may be the best of them. I know that you're looking for more, and you're looking for a test that will help you identify super violets. Your methods are crude compared to the Chromarias. The general level of your drafter's abilities is poor, and you're hoping that the perspectives I bring might be valuable to you. That last is speculation, but well supported, I think. So I think you want me to train your super violets. The color prince poured himself some brandy, held up a finger, watched it as it turned a dull hot red, and touched it to his cigarro. And that's all you have for me? You were Coyus White Oak. Past tense? She had no answer. How did you find out? I asked. And what does this revelation tell you? Not as much as I'd hoped. Come with me. They walked through the camp in the low light of a shrouded moon and a thousand campfires. As soon as he stepped out of the tent, two drafters and two soldiers clad in white fell in beside them. The white god? Are there no mirrors in nature? There have been four attempts on my life. One by one of my former generals, three by parties unknown. Light cannot be chained, but the Chromaria hopes it can be extinguished. They passed the camp in its thousands. It was more organized than when it had marched on Garriston. Practice, Liv supposed. Few people even noticed their leader moving down the path, and those who did didn't seem to know how to salute him. Some bowed, some prostrated themselves, some gave a more military salute. The Blues want me to standardize the response to me, but I only want to impose what order is needful. More order is needful while directing an army than I would like. But once we tear down what the Chromaria has built, the needs will change. All will be free in the light. They stopped in front of a gallows on the western edge of the camp. Four men were hanged there. In the low light of torches, Liv couldn't see their faces, but she did see the unnaturally elongated necks. The prince held up a hand, and a beam of yellow light shone on the dead men. There was dried blood down each man's chin. Their features were swollen. The birds had been feeding on them. Liv didn't know much about how bodies rotted, but she knew enough to be able to tell that these men had been dead for more than a day. So they couldn't be criminals. The army had just arrived here. There are zealots. Martyrs, now. These were men I sent to spread the news to Atash, to prepare the way for us. They went unarmed. They were only to speak, to convince. Their tongues were torn out, and they were tortured before they were hanged. The Atashians didn't even wait for them to cross the border. Invading our land to kill the unarmed? This is a declaration of war and commencement of hostilities. Atash has sown the wind. 
They will reap the whirlwind. You tell a lot of lies, don't you? The Superviolet made her understand structures, but not necessarily obey them. The Prince's guards stiffened. Liv saw glares of hatred from them. But the Prince looked over at her curiously. I forget who you are, but perhaps you do too. I don't deny that I already intend to liberate Atash, but they have drawn first blood against innocence. And let me tell you this, Oliviana Danavis. It's time for you to step beyond the illusions of your childhood. A lie told in the service of truth is virtue. Do you know why Elysian pirates have plagued the Cerulean Sea for centuries? Because they have safe havens and the Elysian coast is treacherous for those who don't know. No. Because men are bad at judging their own long-term interests. Satraps hate the pirates. Traders hate the pirates. Families whose fathers are pressed into their service hate them. Parents whose sons are enslaved to pull an oar hate them. But though the pirates have been bruised a few times, and I'll be the first to acknowledge this is one good thing that the so-called prism has done, they always come back. And why? Because satraps find it easier to pay them off than to crush them forever. There are currently four pirate lords in Elita, and each of them has signed contracts with the Abornian Satrapa, swearing not to attack ships flying the Abornian flag. Do you know what happens to the money that Satrapa sends to those pirates? It enriches the pirates. It finances more piracy, and the dreams of every pirate to become a pirate lord himself. Satraps have looked at the problem and despaired. From time to time, they'll go after one pirate lord who broke a treaty, and sometimes they're even successful in hanging a boat full of men. But it never sticks. No one is willing to put her money or men on the line to help others. So then when it's her ships getting stolen and scuttled, no one is willing to help her in return. Now don't you think the seven satrapies would be better off if they worked together for once and simply took care of the problem? Not just better off now, but better off for a hundred years? If you could really stop it. You really think you can accomplish what satraps and prisms have failed to do? Absolutely. It's purely a matter of will. And that I have in infinite supply. That's small, Liv. Slavery. Nature made not slaves, nor should man. You're Tyrian, and your land hasn't been tainted as much as others, but slavery's a curse. I'll end it. The Chromeria is the same. It comes and sweeps up the flower of a nation, its drafters, and takes them away, indoctrinates them, returns them only to those places it favors, and fools the young drafters into thinking they're doing it for their own good. Like slavery, a curse that corrupts those on both sides. Everyone has said these institutions are too big to change. I say they're too big not to change. I lie in pursuit of that. Say it will be easier than it will be. I admit it. I lie carefully, and only to motivate people toward their own good and the good of the seven satrapies. Who decides which ends are worth lying for? You think I do this lightly? Look at what the Chromeria has wrought. Your father is a drafter. He's my enemy right now, but I can recognize him as a great man, a great soul. Would not almost anything be better than murdering him? Are your hands any cleaner because you ask someone else to do the murdering for you? Maybe they can be convinced that the freeing is unnecessary. That whites aren't evil. That- Convinced? 
live. The freeing isn't incidental to the Chromeria's order. It's the central pillar. Without the freeing, there's no necessity for the Chromeria. If drafting isn't oh so very dangerous, you needn't send your daughter to a far country to learn it. Without that, there's no indoctrination and no capture of the most valuable commodity in the whole world, drafters. Without control over and a monopoly on the drafters, the whole house comes down. That's why this... The prince pointed to the dead men. You might wonder why I haven't cut them down, given them a decent burial. I will. After all of our people march past this and see what kind of animals we're fighting. Because I refuse to cover up the Chromeria's sins, and I refuse to take part in them. He stared at the bodies for another moment, sadness in his eyes. Or at least, Liv thought she read sadness there. He looked at her. You have questions? Not about this. And not... now. I favor you because of your mind, Oliviana. You needn't restrict yourself to the lecture at hand. The gods. Are they real? What does Zyman say? He says they are. But? But he's Zyman and you're you. <laughs> Perfectly put. You ought to be an orange. Yes, they are real. Though I don't believe their exact nature is like either the Chromaria or the new priests think. I like you, Oliviana. You ask the right questions. You think big. But you don't think big for yourself. You're too modest. I need my drafters trained, of course. That is a purpose, and a worthy one. But it's not a great purpose. Does it have to do with Zyman? Zyman? Oh, you fear that I'm trying to pair you off with him? He's certainly doing his best, my lord. <laughs> yes, I'm not surprised. Zyman never underestimates himself. No, I put you with Zyman because you're of an age, and I thought you'd appreciate that. And it keeps both of you busy. If you prefer another tutor... No, my lord. I've rather grown... used to him, I should say. Only... he doesn't speak about his past much. The only important thing for you to know about Zyman's past is that he tried to assassinate the prison. He really did? He said something, but I thought he was... I gambled. Sent Zyman on a mission that had a low chance for success. He thinks he failed, which is good. It helps me keep him in line. Truth is, he only half failed. History may give him credit for midwifing. His voice trailed off. He looked up at the sky. A new era? Midwifing a new era? Liv followed his gaze as the moon emerged, illuminating the nighttime clouds. They were spread across the sky in perfect lines, horizon to horizon. Perfectly spaced, perfectly parallel. The vision for such a thing couldn't be real, could it? Lasted for perhaps 20 seconds. Then the clouds broke under the onslaught of the winds, smeared, scattered. New gods, Oliviana. New gods. Secrets? What secrets? I don't know. Yet. That's why I brought you here today. I wanted to know if you were one of them. You're not. So is that good news or bad news? It is very, very bad news. I still don't understand. <laughs> Understatement. Huh? Come here. 
Kip came to her side. She showed him her sketches. The first was of a cloaked hooded figure, lit from behind, long hair falling in front of his eyes in a dark curtain, eyes dimly gleaming from behind the mass, a beard with gleaming beads woven in, a dagger drawn. An assassin? Another showed a bald, ebony-skinned man, bleeding from a cut under one eye, wearing an eye patch, spinning short swords in both hands. Another showed... Wait, that's Commander Ironfist. Ah, uh -huh. so it is. Thank you. What happened to his hair? He's in mourning for his lost blackguards. Ah, yes, of course. Why are you asking me? Why does he only have one eye? Does he not only have one now? Hmm... It's not always literal. Her head tilted to the side. She scrawled an old Perian word on the paper, below Iron Fist. Guardian? Sentry, watchman, guardian, vigil keeper, strong tower. Quiet. Quiet? How's that fit? Not him, you. Be quiet. Oh, oh, sorry. She drew a scrawl around his neck, a necklace. But her hand paused when she got to what was hanging from the chain. Ah, lost it. I'm still back at what you're doing with the Commander Iron Fist. Do you think being prism is too small for your boy? You keep saying things that make no sense to me. Because I keep trying to draw you as the next prism, and I can't. You won't be the prism, kid. I don't aspire to that. Do you aspire to more? There is no more. Is there? Is there a name that others call you? Do you mean besides Kip? Sure. Fatty, Lardguile, Bastard, Pokey. Something else. Maybe I've gone about this wrong. Maybe instead of trying to make your card, maybe I should try to decide which card is yours. Look, I just came here to learn how to play better. Can you help me or not? What do you know about Z Oakenshield? Nothing. Do you know anything about the cards? I know all sorts of things about the cards. I've memorized 736 of them by name and ability. I've committed a dozen famous games to memory. I know 20 of the standard decks and why they work. Does that count for anything? No. Oh, hell. If Kip had honestly wasted all the time he'd spent studying, he was going to find the nearest tall building and throw himself off. I just... <laughs> it means you're ready to start. I feel a sudden, intense desire to throw a temper tantrum. The cards are true, young Isle. And that's why this game has been played by generations of fools and madmen and wise women and satraps. Take a moment and soak that up. The strengths and weaknesses on the cards are honest to the figures they depict. Not all-encompassing, of course, for a few numbers, a few lines, and a pretty picture can only tell so much, but not misleading. Ah. But that's only the beginning of the greater truth, the greater gift that is mirroring. She walked over to the wall and grabbed a card. Come, look, and see. Taste the light of Orholum. Superstitious drivel or magical invocation? or efficacious prayer. Kip had no idea. The old woman seemed half mad. Maybe every word she was telling him was a lie or a delusion. The card was, Kip guessed, an original. A young woman dressed in leathers, buttons of turquoise, pale skin, flaming red hair piled atop her head, caged between black ironwood thorns. Green stained the skin of her left arm, which was down at her side, leaves coiling about it. Her right hand was behind her back, as if she might be concealing a dagger. She stood straight-backed, and the smirk on her face was imperious, 
ready for anything. This is your great, 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 great grandmother, Z. Oakenshield. In most ways, she is the founder of your house, though the guile name comes from elsewhere. She was attractive, and there was nothing about her to remind Kip of himself. But that smirk was all Gavin guile. It was like the artist had carried her expression over a century and dropped it on the man. She doesn't even have a shield. Nicely done, Kip. She never carried a shield, oaken or otherwise. The name was for something else. But I needn't tell you. You see the gems? Kip nodded. There were five tiny gems framing the picture, one at each corner, one above her head. Draft a bit, any color, and then touch all those gems at the same time. She pointed at a painting with broad bands of the drafting colors on one wall. Kip stared at the blue. Blue was far less frightening than green. Within seconds, he felt a wash of cool rationality. Should he obey this woman? Well, if he didn't, he wouldn't learn anything. The only reason he'd come was to learn. Besides, what was she going to do with a card that she couldn't do to him with one of her many guns? With the blue in his fingertips, he touched the gems. Nothing happened. Well, that was disappointing. Push harder. It needn't bleed, but it must be near enough to call your blood. You've got soft hands. It shouldn't be hard. Soft hands? Kip grimaced, but obeyed. Tapping the blue jewel hard, his other fingers loosely over their corresponding jewels. Z blinks to clear her eyes, peering into the dawn. Filtering through the smoke of two burning cities on either side of the great river, the rising light is red. It's disorienting, having his view cast this way and that, without his body moving, without any control. There are enemy soldiers on both sides of the great river. Kip can almost hear the whisper of thoughts attached to those men, who they are, what they do, but enemy is the only thing that drifts through to him. She's on the high ground, and her siege drafters are already at work, ropes and cranks at the ready, waiting for the dawn to get enough light to do the rest of their work. Z turns to a hulking brute of a man with one eye. He looks at her, a frightening visage, but deferring. An officer? A subordinate, certainly. He holds a great bow, an arrow the size of a ship spar drawing back. Her mouth moves, but Kip hears nothing. He can only see. The enemy is 400 paces away, 20 paces downhill. Downwind from Z, to judge by the flapping of the standards. The Rathgari army is jogging, keeping ranks. Some of Z's horsemen, most still in their teens, are already charging. She sees officers waving at them angrily, calling them back perhaps? And then, defeated, the officers follow them. Her line is tearing, some of the clansmen on foot following after the horsemen, spoiling the shots of her archers. Once the foot soldiers charge, the archers would have to leave off shooting. Instead of a dozen volleys of a thousand arrows each, it would be six. She shouts something, looking toward the siege drafters, who have already drafted the great green luxon crossbeam and are filling the barrels of flammable red luxon to hurl at the approaching army. They and a dozen other siege drafting teams may get off two rounds. She jumps on her horse, the sudden movement sickening Kip, shouting something to Small Bear, that's his name. Small Bear says nothing, adjusts his aim incrementally, and looses the huge arrow. A thousand archers follow his lead. She grabs a torch and rides out in front of her men. Kip thinks she's shouting. Perhaps all the men are shouting. She throws the torch in a high arc, and her men surge forward. Her thirty mighty men surround her in seconds, 
Something is shifting, sinking deeper. A flaming barrel of red Luxon smashes into the front lines of the Rothgari, bursting and cutting a vertical flaming slash, crushing men and setting them alight. I draft green off the grasses that will soon run red. To my left, young bull and Grivgazan are drafting blue and green respectively, swatting arrows and firebombs out of the air, keeping me safe. I draft a lance of green Luxon and kick my stab in its ranks. Enough! enough, enough. I don't seem to notice. The taste of ashes heavy in the air is more noticeable by its sudden absence than it had been in its presence. When did she start tasting, smelling? Then the smell of ash and sweat and horses, gone. The feel of the saddle between her knees, knuckles tight on the lance. It goes dark. <gasps> Kip found his hand held in the crones. She pulled his fingers off the gems on the card, one at a time. Breathless. Kip looked into her eyes. He could feel the blue Luxon leaving him, draining into nothingness, abandoning him, leaving him empty, lifeless. I'll be damned. You heard something there at the end? Smelled? Tasted? Uh, a little. They lied. Of course they lied. Of course they're guiles. But why would he send you here alone? He must have known you'd be discovered for what you are. We must know. Stare at the ceiling. The ceiling, which Kip would have noticed earlier if it hadn't been for the profusion of original cards, was a full spectrum, enameled and shining. Uh, do you want me to do something? Uh, draft or... Keep looking up is all. She pressed his fingers onto a card, one at a time. She pushed his pinky down hard. A whiff of tea leaves and tobacco washed over him. He was about to comment when he felt a bone-deep weariness settle over him. His body ached. He pondered the exact words. It was a cool evening, and the scent of gunpowder clung to the ship and the men. Somewhere on the ship, a woman was weeping, over the dead, no doubt. His room was dark, lit by only a single candle. Outside, silver streaks of moonlight cut the night like a sword. He rolled the quill between his fingers, his naked hand lay across the parchment, holding it in place. No secretary for this. This was treason. There was a name the missive was addressed to, but the hand obscured it. It ended, Os, which meant it could be anyone Rothgari, or one of thousands whose name was Rothgari, even if their blood no longer was. Then, Kip lost all awareness of himself. A more advantageous piece may be found on the opposite shore of war. Diagnose. I write. The scritching of my quill filling the little cabin until the last word, which is silent, muted, odd. Then the cabin, dark. I feel. Kip feels. Kip felt dizzy. He was back, staring through his own eyes once more. At age 15? No. What the? What the hell just happened? You didn't tell me. Well, I could have made things easier for you. I tell you what, this is my fault somehow? You're telling me you don't know? The cards make their connection through light, Kip. The more colors you can draft, the truer your experience. What happened to me? You saw more than you were supposed to. Let me leave it at that. Was it real? That is a more difficult question than you know. Did she die? Z? Not in that battle, though she lost. She was fighting against... 
Darian Guile. Fifteen years later, she bought peace by having her daughter marry him. It was said that she wanted to marry him herself, but she was too old to bear children, and she knew lasting peace could only be bought by binding the families together forever. There were rumors of an affair between Z and Darian, but they weren't true. Darian Guile respected Z enormously, and might have preferred to marry her, but they both knew how much blood might be spilled over one man's broken oath and one woman's folly. A lesson your family had to learn the hard way some time later. Kip didn't know what she was talking about, but he assumed from how she said it that the war Z and Darian had been fighting must have been started by something personal. Was he a good man? Darian? He was a guile. What was the second god? Something about Dagnu. That was the old pagan god. Kip wondered how old that card had been. A mistake. I grabbed the closest real card and I should have known better. Which was no answer at all. These cards all do that? Only the originals. Which ones are originals? I'm not going to tell you. But I will tell you that many of the cards here are booby-trapped. If you try to take them off the wall, you'll have some very nasty surprises in store. If you get them off the wall and try to draft their truth, you most likely won't survive the hell they put your mind through. I thought you wanted to help me. I do. I'm just letting you know that if you steal from me, you'll be left a gibbering idiot. Even the real cards, used correctly, have dangers. Not all truths are beautiful. These cards can make a man delusional, make him lose himself. They can teach hideous things to those who wed not wisdom to power. Regardless, a woman must needs protect herself. I don't care about your father, except to make his card. I don't care about you, except to make your card. This is what a mirror does. It's who I am. It is my mission from Orholim himself, and I will do it well. If you help me do it, I will be happy to help you. You've let me know what you can draft. That helps enormously. So I'll give you this to start. If you play with the deck that Andros Guile gives you, you'll always lose. Peril is unique among the colors, and it is uniquely dangerous. Tia scowled. She thought that despite being the weakest and the worst color, at least Peril wouldn't get you killed or drive you mad. Then she scowled again, because they were standing in one of the Blackguard's training halls. It was dinner time, and there weren't many scrubs in the hall. Mostly it was inductees from the classes ahead of Tia's, but Cruxer was nearby, kicking his shins methodically up against a post. He told Tia once that it lightly broke the bones in the shin, and that the body responded by building them up ever tougher. He'd showed her his lumpy shins. It was impressive, and kind of gross. She thought it was the greatest thing she'd ever seen. But right now, he'd slowed his training, obviously eavesdropping. What's dangerous about it? Tia's private tutor, Marta Martens, was more than 50 years old. Ancient for a drafter. Wavy dark hair gone platinum, olive skin. That you go blind or burn to death. Oh, is that all? To see peril, you have to dilate your pupils much, much more than most people can. 
You can do this consciously, yes? Yes, mistress. Do it. I need to see. It took Dia a moment. It was hard to relax your eyes as far as peril demanded when you were tense. But then it came. Good. Now back to normal. I assume you've never seen your own eyes in a mirror when you've done that? No? Watch. The woman stared at Tia, and her eyes dilated unnaturally wide. The iris a tiny band of brown around a huge pupil. That's Tusi subred. Then her pupils flared again, stretching the sclera itself, her entire eye going in eerie black, pushing the white to nothingness. Tia flinched and shrank back. The woman's eyes went back to normal in a blink. That's what your eyes look like when you're viewing peril, Adrastia. Our eyes themselves are different. The lens is far more malleable, blessed by Orholum to see differently. Can you see, Superviolet? No. And I'm colorblind. Red-green. Unfortunate. Are you? Colorblind? No. But it's more common among us. We can see a vast spectrum of light, far more than other drafters. But that doesn't necessarily overlap with what others see. My own mistress's master, Shyam Rasad, was completely blind in the visible spectrum, but navigated perfectly with subred in peril. But, dangers. First, the physical. If you dilate your eyes so much in bright light too often, you will go blind. Slowly, usually, but you need to take extreme care with mag torches and bright sunlight. Now enough talk. Let's see what you can do. So they began practicing. Magister Martens asking Tia what she could see, drafting substances of her own, picking out sources distant and near, asking Tia to draft it herself. The peril, as Magister Martens explained it, was more like a gel than anything, albeit a gel that was lighter than air. It made good markers because the gel floated and frayed apart, constantly emitting peril light. So you made the markers for my mistress? She was stupid not to have realized it earlier. Of course the woman had. There weren't exactly hundreds of peril drafters around. The woman's face went very still. How many others are there? Only two right now. Magister Martens looked to either side as she spoke, glancing nervously without moving her head over at Cruxer, who was still pretending to be working out. You and me. But that can't be right. I saw a man craft solid peril and- Shh! Tia froze up. Magister Martens smoothed her features and calmly walked toward the exit, beckoning Tia to join her. When they were out into the huge bright underground cavern beneath the Chromeria, she went around the corner of the building where they couldn't be seen. When Tia joined her, she saw that the woman was livid. I don't know what you thought you saw, but you are never to speak of it again, do you understand? I... I'm sorry, but no. You don't need to understand, you need to be silent. Especially about such things. No, you're my tutor! Teach me! I need to know everything if I'm to get into the Blackguard. You can't hold back on me! I can and I will. You're my disciple. You will obey me. Then I'll take my questions to Commander Ironfist. I want you to think very carefully about what you're considering, young lady. Going to someone I trust? Someone in authority over me with a simple question, that's what? Tell me what you think you saw, quietly. So Tia did. Magister Martens was shaking her head, even before Tia was finished. No. I've tried to make Peril solid a thousand times a thousand. It doesn't work that way. But what if it did? Yes, exactly. Tia lifted her palms, more mystified than angry now. Maybe drafting Peril really did make you crazy. Magister Martens looked around again, though there was no one to overhear them. Think about what you're suggesting. 
A color that's invisible to nearly everyone, even every drafter. A color that could kill without leaving a mark, without leaving any evidence that looked like a natural death. Please, use your tiny brain to think about how people would react to such magic. Tia licked her lips. They would react exactly as she had, with terror. Anytime someone dies mysteriously, it becomes the fault of a peril drafter. Anytime some obese noble keels over from a burst heart, people whisper that it's the work of his enemies, and every noble has enemies, and most of them are fat. Think first about what that does to nations, when any death could have been in assassination. Then, think what that does to peril drafters. When the Office of Doctrine set out Luxors to stamp out peril drafters, they weren't authorized solely or even mainly because the Spectrum thought we were heretics. So it does work? You are admitting it! I'm admitting nothing. I've never seen solid peril and I can't make it. I don't believe it can be done. There were some of us. Hundreds of years ago, who worked for the Order of the Broken Eye. Assassins. I think they probably killed with poisons, but by claiming that they could kill invisibly and without leaving any trace, they got many more contracts. But then, when people did die, it got out of control. Why there aren't any peril drafters anymore, you fool girl. Not because it doesn't work but because everyone fears it might work better than it actually does. That's why we're still perilously close to being called heretics, why the libraries have been scrubbed of references to us, and why the present White has had to fight so hard to reign in the Office of Doctrine. She believes all light is Orholum's gift, but there are the superstitious people in every age. They call it dark light. Orlam. Hidden light. They say it is a gift from the Lord of Darkness. A darkness that can only be driven away with fire. Do you understand? A darkness that can only be driven away with fire. Burnings. I met her once, you know. The White. She apologized. Said that drafters treat peril drafters like the benighted treat all drafters. Said she was working to overcome it, but that it would be a labor of... Several generations. A good woman. Don't you dare overturn all her work with foolish rumors. We may never have such a friend in the Cromeria again. This is bigger than you and me. This is for generations yet to come. Your mistress has already asked me all sorts of questions and I've had to lie a thousand ways to convince her you were delusional. When next you meet her, you tell her that just before you came to see her, you saw the peril again. Describe it as a streak, but there was no one there. That it originated from thin air. Be confused, and if she asks, tell her you haven't asked me about this yet, but you will. That you never said anything to me about the dead woman. I've told her that peril drafters tend to see streaks at times, that it's a side effect of our drafting. You're to make her believe that what you saw was a coincidence. Because if you don't, our kind will be purged again. Yes, Magister. Then let's get to work. I want to see how far away you can place a beacon, and how tight the beam you can use to see through clothing. Magister, how does it work? I mean, how does it supposedly work? I'll never speak of it again. I promise, but please. In the stories, if she had the knowledge and tremendous will, a drafter could sharpen peril not only to a solid, but into a needle so fine a person wouldn't feel it poke them. 
The drafter would make a tiny stone inside the target's blood and release it. Supposedly, that eventually causes apoplexy, a stroke, the Chiorgians call it now. But there's no reason Peril should hurt anyone. I've cut myself and touched Peril to my blood. It isn't poisonous. But you're describing exactly what happened! And I'm telling you that you must have read the same story I did and forgotten it. Hallucinations are not uncommon among exhausted drafters. We who work with light sometimes have our eyes do strange things. Tia couldn't believe the woman's willful blindness. Magister, does my mistress think it can be done? Does she believe you or me? Does she want me to do that to someone? I know two things about your mistress. She's more interested in who she can take to her bed than she is in dusty old tomes and forbidden libraries she'd have to pay a fortune to gain access to. Dangerous knowledge is often hidden under ponderous grammar and obscurantist vocabulary. She hasn't the patience to sift through mysteries. Everyone's heard silly stories about dark drafters and night weavers. No one knows anymore that those stories are about us. Which is why it behooves us not to remind them. Which is why I'd like you to wear darkened spectacles whenever you draft Pero publicly, or to always draft quickly so that no one sees your eyes. And the second thing? There are those who can savor a silent victory. Your mistress is not one of them. She's not looking for quiet ways to kill the Giles. But when she figures out whether helping the Prism's bastard or hurting him will hurt the Giles more, you can expect to be used. No matter what it costs you or her, she's insane with hatred. So don't get too close to that boy Kip. You'll probably have to betray him. Lightbringer Saga, Book 2, The Blinding Knife, Part 1, is a graphic audio production. Copyright 2012, Brent Weeks. Published by arrangement with Hachette Book Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. Production copyright 2012 by The Cutting Corporation Incorporated. All rights reserved. With performances by Christopher Sheeran, Joe Brack, Karen Novak, Stephen Carpenter, Kimberly Gilbert, Elliot Dash, Tracy Oliveira, Michael John Casey, Laura Reichert, David Coyne, Richard Rowan, David Harris, Tim Getman, James Konachek, Eric Messner, Susan Linsky, Thomas Keegan, Daniel Sontag, Thomas Penny, Michael Glenn, Casey Platt, Colleen Delaney, Dylan Lynch, Drew Copus, Anastasia Wilson, Patrick Bussing, Tim Carlin, Nick DePinto, Alyssa Wilmoth, Joel Santner, Johan Detweiler, Christopher Graybill, Bradley Smith, Robert Collins, Nanette Savard, James Lewis, Dolores King-Williams, Gary Tells, Yasmin Twazon, Evan Casey, Ken Jackson, Jessica Lefko, K. 
Katie Karkov, Elizabeth Jernigan, Barbara Pinellini, Ren Casey, and Lily Beacon. Adapted and directed by Johan Detweiler. Produced by Richard Rowan and Dwayne Beeman. Executive producers James Cutting, Mary Cutting, and Angie Cornett. Dialogue editing and graphic audio sound design by Johan Detweiler. Featuring original music composed and performed by Dan Smith and Johan Detweiler. If you enjoyed the Lightbringer saga, be sure to look for R.A. Salvatore's Saga of the First King and John Zakor and Lawrence Ganim's Nuclear Bombshell series. Available now in graphic audio at Road Stops Everywhere at 1-800-670-5220 or at www.graphicaudio.net. Keep listening for exciting previews of other graphic audio material. Yeselnik's armies march across haunts, driving the peasants before them. Lawlessness and chaos reign, spreading throughout the land like a cancer. All hope lies in Branson Garabond, but he is a beaten and broken man. When all the world balances on the brink of destruction, haunts will cry out for a new savior. But will he answer the call? Find out in the thrilling conclusion of the Saga of the First King, Book 4, The Bear. Available now in graphic audio. Thanks for talking to me, Scratch. It eased my troubled mind a little. Well, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> you probably thought I was going to ask you to let me go, didn't you? <laughs> it wouldn't have done you any good. I know that. That's why I didn't waste my time. You're not the sort of man who'd turn on his friends for a woman. No, I sure ain't. But what about a woman who knows where there's a fortune in greenbacks and gold? When Scratch is confronted with a woman of deadly charm and persuasion, he contemplates throwing away everything he's ever known. Bob would come after us. You think so? I know he would. He tried to track us down short as shooting. I suppose I could wait a few more days. Even though being locked up like this is making me awful crazy, Scratch. Oh, you can do it. Won't be much longer and then the two of us can be together. That sounds good. Witness the ultimate betrayal in Sidewinder 6, Texas Bloodshed. Available now in graphic audio. If you can't find that graphic audio title you're looking for, go to www.graphicaudio.net where you can order it in CD format or digital download if you're on the road, call 1-800-670-5220. That's 1-800-670-5220. Or www.graphicaudio.net. 
And if you're looking for a great way to try out a different graphic audio series, check out our convenient and easy-to-store long-haul box sets, which contain up to five books of a series. Available only at www.graphicaudio.net. Be sure to sign up for our monthly newsletter or follow us on Twitter.